The final summer of the 20th century was relatively quiet for the Vancouver Canucks, at least given the few that had preceded it. There was no big-name trade or free agent signing, no public contract squabbles with star players, no coaching change, no shuffle in senior management or transfer of ownership. GM Brian Burke had made his splash at the draft, and he was clearly running the show. Now he needed a few people to watch it. At the end of our first year there, uh, when I had fired Mike and brought in Mark Crawford, we had, I want to say, 7,600 season tickets at the end of my first year. Like, we were in danger of the, there's rumors of the team moving and all the whole bit. How close the Canucks ever were to moving is more a matter of opinion than fact. But in the late 90s, with a weak Canadian dollar and trouble at the turnstiles, it felt like a real possibility. Vancouver had the fewest spectators of any Canadian team in the 98-99 season and ranked 21st in NHL attendance. Assistant GM Dave Nonis completely understood ownership's decision to change the approach. You know, John McCaw, I don't think, ever went into this thinking he was going to own the team. Once he had it, I think he enjoyed it. And as a lot of new owners, they do throw money around. It quickly became a business. And, you know, the team was not drawing great. He was losing some money. And, you know, he made the decision to run it more, you know, really on a strict budget. So Burke and Nonis weren't going to fix the problem with money. The Canucks had spent on sizzle only to fail. The team needed substance. And they were betting that most of it was already in-house. We put that team back on the map, man. Like, there were some bleak times there for a while. For that next five or six years, he was the best power forward in the game. There was a confidence that we believed if we went out and played the way we were capable, we could score every shift. Now it's kind of league-wide. I want to come see the West Coast Express, you know, see these guys in action. That line sold tickets. That line cared about the community. That line gave back. We knew that we would never be satisfied unless we would win the cup. Everything, the whole thing. It's like a bad nightmare happened. In a matter of seconds, I mean, lives basically changed forever. Not surprisingly, Daniel and Henrik Sedin had informed the Canucks that they would spend the next year in Sweden finishing high school and playing for Moto. While it was the logical choice, it also left the Canucks very thin at center, Henrik's natural position. Dave Gagne, the center iceman the Canucks acquired in the Pavel Bure trade, was retiring, and there wasn't much behind 39-year-old Mark Messier who was entering the final year of his contract. Vancouver needed more experience in the middle of the ice and found it in the form of Andrew Castles, which was music to the ears of head coach Mark Crawford. Andrew could play a lot of different facets. He could play in a shutdown role because he was so clever and so positionally strong. He could play in a puck distribution sense if you had people that needed that type of play. We could play him on wing at occasion if we needed him. He was such a good penalty killer and such an intelligent player. Castles was coming off a couple of down years in Calgary, but had a history of producing points, including in Hartford, where his career-best season just happened to coincide with Burke's lone year as the Whalers' GM. Castles joined Messier and Alex McGilney as proven scorers who were also meant to help the likes of Marcus Nasland and Todd Bertuzzi reach their potentials. Very, very underrated player. When you play with guys that have that little extra, you, you notice it. Andrew was, in my mind and, and many others too, one of the best playmakers during that era. 
the laid puck scenario. So basically, you just have to find open ice and, and you would get the puck at the right time. Burke and Crawford attempted to insulate their promising young defensemen in a similar manner. Experienced rear guards Murray Barron and Greg Hoggood were meant to provide stability, while Matthias Oland, Ed Jovanovsky, and Adrian Coyne took the reins on the blue line. But adversity struck arguably the best of that bunch before the season even began. Playing in a preseason game against Ottawa, Matthias Oland was struck in the face with a puck and suffered a serious eye injury. He would miss the first half of that season and unfortunately never regain 100% of the vision in his right eye. Down a prominent player, the Canucks got off to a strong start in their first full season under Crawford, and Naslin led the way. Now here's a two-on-one. McCall from the right wing. Naslin in the middle. There's a pass. Naslin shoots. Scores! He opened the campaign with the 100th goal of his career, which proved to be the game winner against the Rangers and a catalyst for both Naslin and the team. Playing on the Canucks' top line with Messier, Naslin had 13 points in Vancouver's first 15 games. Messier had 12 points of his own, and the Canucks had just four regulation losses in those 15 games. But in the first minute of Game 16, Messier suffered a knee injury and would miss the next five weeks. Making matters worse, McGillney was injured two weeks later. Naslin maintained his individual production in their absence, but it wasn't enough. The Canucks won just three times in those 16 games. Part of that was a lack of secondary scoring. Bertuzzi was among those struggling to find the score sheet, picking up just 11 points in his first 30 games. I thought he was a guy that needed to modify his game a little bit. He needed to play more like a power forward and he needed to shoot. You could see the talent, but at that point he was at the stage where he had to go through the whole team and then score a highlight goal and instead of knowing when to put on a show and, and try to use his energy at the right times. So I, I think he was at the point where he's starting to realize what he had to do to be successful. But he, I remember him scoring some unreal goals, but he wasn't doing it regularly. The other part of the problem was goaltending. Their number one netminder, Garth Snow, fractured a finger early in the season, which opened the door for Kevin Weeks to show he was ready for more than just a backup role. Just as his game appeared to be rounding into form, Weeks pulled himself early in his eighth straight start after feeling a twinge in his knee. It forced unproven and frankly unqualified backup Alfie Michaud into the crease to finish the game. The results of the Canucks medical testing failed to indicate an injury, but Weeks maintained that something was wrong. Down two goaltenders, Burke was forced to trade for another and brought in Corey Schwab to stem the tide with both Snow and Weeks on the shelf. But he didn't stop shopping. The disagreement over Weeks' injury had caused a rift between the netminder and the team. So less than a year after acquiring the player he labeled the goalie of the future, Burke packaged Weeks with forwards Dave Scatchard and Bill McCult in a deal to land Felix Potvin from the New York Islanders, who also sent the Canucks a pair of draft picks. Viewed as a future star in his early 20s, Potvin had struggled in recent years, both in Toronto and on Long Island. But at 28 years old, with over 400 games on his resume, the ultra-athletic Potvin seemed worth the gamble, according to Ian McIntyre. Felix Potvin was not long removed from being almost this iconic starting goalie for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And people were really excited because he was supposed to be the guy who had the pedigree, who had the experience, who had the ability. And now, another opportunity. The tandem of Potvin and Snow gave the Canucks improved goaltending, but wins were still few and far between in December and January. Messier was slow to regain his scoring touch after returning from injury, as was McGillney, 
Naslin fell into a mid-season funk and produced just three points in 14 games. Jovanovski was logging big minutes, but he wasn't providing the offense both he and the Canucks had hoped for. It takes a little bit longer for a defenseman to mature at a great rookie year. You know, by statistics-wise, yeah, by a few better each every year, but the play dipped. And I think expectations get a little bit higher when you have success. The Canucks stumbled into February's All-Star break in an all-too-familiar position, near the basement of the Western Conference. Vancouver was on the verge of another lost season. But something unexpected happened when the Canucks resumed their schedule. They started to win a few games. And Bertuzzi was a big reason why. Here's a breakaway. Todd Bertuzzi moving in on Joseph. Bertuzzi scores! Look out, there's a freight train on the loose, baby! A McGillney shoulder injury afforded Bertuzzi an opportunity to play more minutes with Castles, and he made the most of it. The burly winger rattled off six goals in eight games as the Canucks finished February with momentum. McGillney returned and scored goals in five straight games to start the month of March. The Canucks were starting to play their way into a playoff race, but instead of continuing to ride McGillney's hot hand, Burke decided to cash out. We did not want to trade Alexander McGillney. We really liked him as a person, but he was underachieving for us there. But we enjoyed having him. It's just a time for a change. Burke made a few phone calls around the league and found out Lou Lamorello had a player who wanted out of New Jersey. Drafted by the Devils in 1993, Brendan Morrison had played four years at the University of Michigan, winning both a national championship and the Hobie Baker Award as the NCAA's best player. At 22 years old, Morrison believed he was ready for the NHL when he turned pro in 97. But the New Jersey way meant cutting your teeth in the minors. When I did make the transition, like I was called up a couple times during my first year pro in Jersey, and, and, I, and I had success. Especially at the end of the year, I, I was called up you know, seven games right at the end of the season. Doug Gilmore was, was injured, so I came up and, and played you know, some pretty decent minutes in 97-98 season. I had like a point a game at eight points in seven games. So that kind of reinforced to me that, hey, I, I was ready, not only ready, but could step in and contribute. But even with that being said, the, the following year, I still knew we had a veteran team. We had a lot of depth, and I knew it, it would take time before I kind of evolved into a player there that had a more prominent role. I mean, I, I played on the top line power play unit with Niedermeyer, Arnott, Sakura, Eliash, and myself. But then I also played on the fourth line with guys that got pretty limited minutes. So I knew I could play an offensive role given the opportunity. You know, I guess I just wanted a bit more at that age. And again, looking around the league, and I think it's just natural to kind of compare yourself to other guys. I kind of felt that other guys were getting more of an opportunity to kind of fulfill their potential than I was in New Jersey. Now a restricted free agent in his mid-20s, Morrison held out briefly at the beginning of the season. When that move didn't work, he summoned the courage to let Lamorello know it was time for a change. I remember the first time I asked to Lou to move me, and it wasn't a very enjoyable conversation. It was one of the most uncomfortable moments I've ever had as a player and having an interaction with a coach or general manager. To put it mildly, he was not happy. You know, he just felt I was getting bad advice. He felt that I was being misguided. I mean, I really do think that, you know, he, he genuinely did like me. He did tell me that, but he just felt like, hey, you know, be patient. Your time will come. But my thinking was, I'm kind of ready for it now. Like, I feel I can handle it now. I would like the opportunity to have a bigger role. And I just didn't know how long it was going to take in New Jersey before that would happen. So I, I tried to, you know, I guess, force the issue, if you will. And, and I did ask him to be moved. It didn't happen right away. But with Vancouver very much in need of depth down the middle 
and New Jersey looking for a proven scorer for a playoff push, Burke agreed to a deadline deal with the Devils. Well, with Brendan, we felt he was a guy that got trapped on a really good team and got buried in the depth chart. The Devils were, in fact, a powerhouse by then. And a guy like Brendan Morrison could get shoehorned out of a job. Brendan Morrison could never get off the third line, even though we felt he had second-line offensive ability. I was actually having lunch in New York City with, well, at the time, it was my fiance. She wasn't my wife, Erin. And my brother-in-law is Daryl Ray, who does the color commentating for the stars. So Dallas was in New York for a game, and Aaron and I were out for lunch with him and Aaron's sister. And he was doing an interview with some radio station in Toronto. They wanted to get his opinion on certain trade line deals that had transpired, except, you know, he was just about to hang up the phone, and, and he asked him, he said, hey, does anything else come across the wire? And they said, hold on a sec, there's actually there's something coming out right now. So he gets the information that, yeah, Jersey just made a deal. Vancouver just sent Alexander McGillney to New Jersey for, for Morrison and Peterson. So my brother-in-law is like, really? He's like, huh, okay, I'll let him know. <laughs> so they get off the phone. He's like, man, I think you just got traded to Vancouver. I'm like, what? I'm like, I haven't heard anything. And then about five minutes after that, I started to get a bunch of messages, phone calls on my phone from buddies saying, hey, we, we just heard you got traded to Vancouver. I said, well, I haven't heard anything yet. So I don't know what's going on. So the trade deadline is 3 p.m. Eastern time. 3 p.m. comes and goes. I still haven't heard. I'm pulling into my driveway in New Jersey. It's 4 p.m. Eastern now. It's uh, Lou's secretary calling. She calls me and says, Lou would like you to come down to the rink and meet with him. So I'm like, I got a pretty good idea what this is all about. So I went down to the rink, met with Lou one-on-one, and, and, and he was very sincere and very genuine. And he's like, listen, we, you know, the way he coined it is we ended up making a transaction today. You know, it was something that I, I really didn't want to have to do, but I did it. I'm sending you home. I'm sending you to Vancouver. At Toyota, our vehicles have always had quality and durability built right in. Because in winter, even our potholes have potholes. Quality means everything to us because it means everything to you. Lease a 2023 RAV4 LE all-wheel drive from $99 weekly for 60 months at 7.19% APR with $2,800 down. Order yours today. Visit shoptoyota.ca or your Pacific Toyota dealer. It's time to Toyota. Support for Unreal West Coast Express comes from New Balance. Hey, I'm an active guy, and New Balance has literally supported me for well over a decade. From distance running to trail running to walking my dog, I've always got New Balance on my feet. Lately, it's been all about the Fresh Foam X series for me. 1080s for the road, Kieros for the trail, and 880s for everything else. Support your feet and support local. Check out the lineup of Fresh Foam X athletic shoes today at your local New Balance store in Richmond, Delta, and Langley. McGilney would go on to win the Stanley Cup with New Jersey that year, but Morrison was elated to be heading home to the team he'd grown up wanting to play for. He and Dennis Peterson, who was also part of the trade, joined a Canucks team that was eight points out of the playoffs with 12 games to go. Morrison, Smith, the check, moves towards the ball. Morrison scored less than five minutes into his Canucks debut as part of a 6-3 victory over the Sabres. It was the first of five wins in the next six games, and Vancouver was suddenly in the thick of a playoff race. The Canucks weren't just winning, they were scoring a lot of goals. 
Naslin and Morrison were among those producing, but no one was hotter than Bertuzzi and Castles as Vancouver closed to within three points of Edmonton and the West's final playoff spot. Two games remained, and the first was against the Oilers. We had to win the game against Edmonton, I think it was, on the Saturday night to have a chance to make the Sunday game important. So we had to pull the goalie in, in overtime, and we got scored on. So we lost the point. But the next day, like everybody was down, we were playing in San Jose, and San Jose had made the playoffs. And I asked Mark Messier, who I knew was kind of his last game, I said, Mark, do you have anything to say? And Mark said this to that group of guys, and I always remember this. I've told it a couple times. He said, you know, guys, you never want to let anybody in this league see you at anything less than your best. These guys have made the playoffs. You're going to be battling with them for years to come. Don't let them see you at anything less than your best. There's going to come a time where you're going to need somebody to win a game for you in the final game of the season. And you owe it to the rest of the league to be professional and play hard because hopefully you can do your job. And the guys went out and they played one of the best games that we played. And we won that game against San Jose. We still didn't make the playoffs, but the message was sent. And it's it's amazing how prophetic those lines were. Mark hit a nail right on the head. And with that... The Messier era in Vancouver came to a close. What began with such promise had failed to deliver a single playoff series, let alone a Stanley Cup. Mark Messier is a guy that everyone loves to blame for failure in in Vancouver, but Mark Messier showed us some things that were really important too. He never cut corners in practice. He never left practice early. He was he was a good worker. He had opportunities to leave and never took them. No, he had a huge effect. Obviously, I grew up watching the Oilers, and I knew everything about the Moose. And to be able to go into his inner circle and be around him, spend time with him, listen to him, I learned that hockey was an everyday thing. He would watch all the games. He would pay attention to what's going around the league. Whereas a lot of us younger guys, when you were away from the rink, you just shut it down and you tried to do other things and all that. But I think just his professionalism and how he wanted everyone to buy into a system. And you had to buy in with Mark because his tenure spoke for itself with the Cups that he won with Edmonton and then obviously with the Rangers. It was easy to gravitate to someone like that and kind of learn the ropes. And I know a lot of us young guys appreciated what he did. He had a great effect on me. He really took me under his wing, and he was well-respected by the players, not just because he's won six Stanley Cups, because of the way he treated his teammates. And I know that he's taken a lot of heat in Vancouver, but he was liked by his teammates. And obviously, I'm I'm very thankful that I got a chance to play with him and and watch him and, and hopefully learn something from him as well. I think a lot of the negative response in the market was that they gave a lot of money to the guy who wasn't the player he'd been. And people had seen him. Remember, he was in Edmonton a lot earlier. And people in Vancouver had seen him up close. They weren't particularly fond of him because he and his teammates beat up on the Canucks for fun. You know, they then they lost to him. He was the Rangers and people were bitter about the loss in that series. And then he comes to Vancouver and try as he might, he was not the player that he'd been in Edmonton or even New York. And he tried mightily to be that player. And because of who he was and how much he was paid, and he had an ally in Mike Keenan when he was there for a long period of time, he got the ice time that probably on another team might have diminished and he wouldn't have been on every first power play, on every first line. He probably didn't deserve to have the best wingers at that time. But there was never such a thing as a bad influence from Mark. 
he still knew how to be a leader. He still knew what it took to make a team. And so his influence on people like Marcus and Todd was still excellent. But if you talk to the season ticket holders of the time, he left a bad taste in their mouths because they didn't see that part of it. They just saw the aging superstar who'd been paid a fortune to come in and lead them to the promised land and couldn't do it. Jim Hewson's summation underscores the contrast between how the organization and the fan base viewed Messier. As positive an influence as Messier may have been on the players, the masses had voted with their wallets. Attendance had fallen to levels not seen since the late 80s for a full season, and as reporter Ian McIntyre explains, there remained a pressure to get the business turned around. I think at that point, they had passed their darkest hour as far as the vulnerability of the franchise and the possibility that John McCaw might want to move it. Again, I don't know how close they ever came to that. But it certainly was possible, and it certainly had been expressed to Brian Burke that he needed to do something to get the team winning and stop the financial losses. Otherwise, they might look somewhere else to take their National Hockey League toy. Though they hadn't made the playoffs, the players believed they'd found something during the stretch drive, and that fans were beginning to believe it too. The end of that year really kind of laid the foundation for the next few seasons as far as generating excitement in the city, and the fan base understanding that, hey, we might have something here with this group of guys. You can slowly see the momentum building. I think you can also feel a little bit more of a buzz in the city that people were excited again, that they had they had a whole different crew of players coming in. They made a lot of changes from the team that they had, and I always have respect for those teams back then. You had the Dave Babbages, you had Trevor, Cliff Ronnings, Cortinals, Kirk McLean. You had a lot of guys who did a lot of great things for that city, but I think at a certain point in time, there needs to be a time for a change. And you can see the momentum slowly building. Berkey was putting very good pieces together. And for perhaps the first time in his career, Bertuzzi truly considered himself one of those pieces. He'd scored nine goals and collected 13 points in Vancouver's final 12 games. And while he'd enjoyed some success down the stretch when Keenan originally brought him in, these were games that mattered. It wasn't until, I believe, the third year, I think I had 25, 25, and 50, where I was like, I can play in this league, and I can play a big role in this league, and I can be dominant if all the stars align. You know what? To be truthful, Todd did most of that himself that first year. He really got hot towards the end of the season, and I think he just became more comfortable. He started to become aware of what he could do more, and I think because of the fact that You know, he was feeling more confidently he was shooting more because of the fact that he was feeling his way, I guess, to put it in layman's terms. He just started to feel much more comfortable about going to the net hard and battling for pucks in front of the net. It felt like the start of something because there were so few physical specimens like Todd Bertuzzi. I mean, the skill level that he possessed for a man his size, you know, whatever he was, 6'3 and what, 240? But the skill level that he possessed to go with that was rare. And when he started to kind of figure things out in Vancouver, I think there was a lot of excitement because, you know, Vancouver had never gotten over losing Cam Neely or giving away Cam Neely. And Todd Bertuzzi, in terms of like a top end power forward, even though his game was a little bit different than Cam Neely's. He was the nearest thing to an elite power forward that the Canucks had had, even though he wasn't elite at that time, but he was showing signs that he could be. 
Like Bertuzzi, the Canucks were a long way from becoming elite, but there were reasons for optimism. Nasland had led the team in scoring for a second straight season. Castles had returned to his productive ways, and Morrison's strong stretch drive offered hope for depth scoring. And then there were the Sedins. Having collectively determined they would break into the National Hockey League, the Canucks decided to take training camp to the Twins, electing to hold it in Stockholm. Our first training camp in Sweden had a lot of things going on at the time and, and just our first time with the team and uh, first time seeing all the players and the staff. Like we, we had so much going on in our heads. So I, I wish we would have had that experience later on in our careers because we, we didn't really have time to enjoy being in, in Stockholm. As Henrik described, the experience was a whirlwind for the Sedins. In addition to acclimating to a new team and style of training camp, they were doing so under the spotlight of the Swedish media. Fortunately, some of that attention was directed at Nasland, who hailed from the same small town as the Sedins and was already establishing himself as a star. He was also establishing himself as a leader. And as the Canucks decision makers considered what to do with the captaincy now that Messier had moved on, they all arrived at the same conclusion. What happens is the more you hang around Nasi, the more you fall in love with him as a teammate. You know, not to sound corny, but people grow on you with their work ethic. And he's such a positive guy and he had such strong leadership skills. I remember when we first started talking about it, we talked about not having a captain. But that was like a 10-second conversation because Crow was adamant. And we said, we can go without a captain if you want. And he said, no, no, I, I've got the guy I want. I want you to tell me you agree. And I'll never forget, we were in the hotel in Stockholm. A training camp there, and that's where we announced the captain. And I'll never forget, Crow was dug in on that one. Like, he, he was not going to lose that fight. But he didn't get much pushback because we all agreed. Seeing Marcus and seeing how he was taking charge of things off the ice, I can remember we talked a lot. Uh, Dave Nonis, Brian Burke, Steve Tambellini had a lot of input on the decision. The other coaches, Jack McElhargy and Mike Johnson, Andy Moog was there at the time. Like I can remember everybody batting around the ideas, and we all felt that the strongest candidate was Marcus. And I think it was a lot to do with how he was acting himself in training camp. And we also felt that at the end, when we were discussing it, it was because we had so much time in the off days in Stockholm. So it was great. And then we came up with the idea at the end. We said, well, let's announce it, you know, uh, right before the last game or right after we leave. And I thought that, you know, sometimes in life, it's, it's timing that's so good. And the timing was perfect. It really was. And again, at the end of the day, Marcus was the guy that performed so well. He was mature enough and had the right temperament and could handle the pressures that come along with being a spokesman in a Canadian market. He was really good at that. And I thought that made the decision look good for all of us, especially Marcus. I still remember when the Canucks did it at the end of the camp and they had a little press conference and Nazan was there and they announced he's going to be captain and handed him a jersey. And there was like three other people in the room so a smattering of applause. But Naslin, he was so happy, and he was in Sweden. So he raised his arms triumphantly. Oh, you could have photoshopped in the Stanley Cup over his hands because that was the pose that he struck. But he was so happy to be captain. Yeah, that was a very special moment. Uh, not only did I get named captain, but it was in Sweden, and there was a lot of 
questions and who should fill uh, Messi's leadership role. And not that I did it by any means, but there was a lot of focus on, on the captaincy. And right from the get-go, I, I think we had a core group that were maturing. We also had great veterans around the group too. So it was an easy transition for me because I did have great support from, from a lot of players. Yeah, i got to be honest with you. I think he's probably the only one who could handle it and handle it the right way. I think with his demeanor, soft-spoken. He always did everything right. He spoke right. He was always available for the media. And I believe he was the only one that could take that job on. I know I certainly wasn't ready. I wouldn't have wanted it. I wasn't able to be able to. I was more focused on giving Vancouver the best version of myself and not necessarily looking at that. So I thought it was a great decision. And I know... Marcus and Mess spent a lot of time talking and all that kind of stuff. And I know that Marcus learned a lot from him, but he had the right demeanor for that job. And being a captain with a Canadian team comes with a huge expectations, a lot of pressure. And I thought Marcus, without doubt, blew it away with flying colors. Just like they had when the Messier era began, the Canucks returned to North America with a brand new captain, albeit under much different circumstances. Unlike Messier, Naslund had never worn the C in the NHL, and there were those who wondered how he'd handle that burden in a Canadian market. And I remember wondering at the time whether it would be good or bad for him. He's such a thoughtful person, such a caring individual for his teammates and everybody who's around him. He wanted everything to be right, and I wasn't sure whether that was good or bad, whether he would spend so much time worrying about being the captain and the burden of the captaincy and not enough about being the best player on the team, because that's what they needed him to be. Hewson wasn't alone in his thinking, but Naslin quickly alleviated those concerns. The freshly minted captain scored seven times in Vancouver's first 10 games, with the Canucks picking up 14 of a possible 20 points to open the season. Castles also bolted out of the gate offensively, as Crawford experimented with different line combinations early on. Eventually, he settled on Naslin, Castles, and Bertuzzi as his top line which suited the hulking winger just fine. He was so intelligent. His hockey IQ was above many other people that I've ever played with. He understood the game, and he was such a terrific man. We had such good times together. He was just an all-around class act, but he was just so intelligent with his decision-making on the puck, and it freed myself and Marcus to just go out and get open, and he was going to find us. Still to this day, one of the worst curves in the world. I don't know how he ever passed like that, but he had a career that was very underrated. I will always say he was one of the better players that I ever played with. There was a lot to like with the Canucks offense in the early stages of that season, but they'd already suffered a setback on the blue line. Matthias Oland, who'd established himself as the team's top defenseman, needed another procedure on the eye he'd injured a year earlier. The Canucks would have to compensate by committee, and it was Jovanovski who absorbed the biggest portion of Oland's minutes. Though his adventurous style was far different than the strong and steady Oland, Jovanovski thrived on the increased responsibility and picked up nine points during Oland's 17-game absence. You know, I felt that, you know, I took that next step where, you know, everything for me was hockey, 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 and trying to get my game to where I needed to be. Which was on pace to smash his career highs. By the midway point of the season, Jovanovski had nearly matched the 26 points he'd produced the previous campaign. He would go on to post 47 points that season, the most by a Canucks defenseman in half a decade. It just took him, I think, a couple of years to continue to grow his game, feel comfortable in his own skin, 
get accustomed to the market in Vancouver because that was a stark difference from where he had played in Florida. And he was just ready to be the elite player that people projected when he was the first player chosen in his draft year. But it wasn't just Jovanovski's production. His swashbuckling style was fairly indicative of the way the Canucks played hockey. Though operating in an era that skewed toward defense, the Canucks were playing an up-tempo attacking style. Sure, there were turnovers, but there were also great plays, the kind that made people take notice, which is exactly what the team needed from both a hockey and a business standpoint, according to assistant GM Dave Nonis. You want people that are paying really good money to feel that they got their money's worth when they come into a building. And, you know, people used to say that, and this is no knock on, knock on Lou, obviously he's a Hall of Famer and, and one of the best GMs in history, but, you know, he really wouldn't have cared if there was two people in the building as long as they won the cup. You know, for us in Vancouver, we wanted to entertain people as well. The other thing was Mark Crawford came from a team that, yes, they were good defensively, but they were on the upswing of that offense entertaining style when he was in Colorado. And that's one of the reasons why we, we went and got Mark was because we felt that he could bring us along and have our team play that way. As far as the identity of the team, I think it had been established. You know, the Brian Burke and Mark Crawford's team, they're going to be relentlessly hardworking. Mark Crawford didn't cut much slack to players. He was very demanding, as most coaches are. And the Canucks played hard. You know, they were tough out. They were rarely an easy opponent. They were almost never just a, a meek opponent. Tough, fast, high-event hockey. It certainly wasn't perfect, but it was definitely entertaining. And the locals approved. Fans were starting to flock back to the stands, eager to support a team headlined by younger players with something to prove the same players who Crawford had identified as his core pieces moving forward. He understood the game and he understood his parts. And he found a role and gave a greater role to the guys that were becoming the best players. He really leaned on guys like Matthias Olin and Ed Jovanovski, who were both defensemen that could play half the game. And then he started to build the confidence and really rely on Marcus and Tom. He didn't have to do that. Maybe he did to win, but he recognized it and he went with it and it paid off big time. Naslund hit the halfway mark of the season with 41 points in 41 games and Castles was only four points behind. Though Bertuzzi trailed his most regular linemates in points, his production had become far more consistent and he was on pace to replicate or slightly surpass the 25-goal, 50-point effort of the previous season. Morrison was centering Matt Cook and Peter Schaefer on the second line, and the trio was providing the type of complementary scoring the Canucks were looking for. We had a good year. Like, like my first year there playing with those guys, I ended up having, I think, at 16 goals, like 54 points, which, you know, kind of playing in a, I would say, probably second line role was pretty decent. So, yeah, I was happy with the way things went overall. I thought it was definitely a step forward. You know, took on a little bigger role. You know, played in special teams, power play, penalty kill. The effectiveness of Morrison's line allowed Crawford to insulate the Sedins as they adjusted to the NHL. By playing Daniel and Henrik on the third line, Crawford could find more favorable matchups for the Twins during the game while supplementing their minutes with second-unit power play time. The result was a team that sat fifth in the Western Conference in early January. But Vancouver's above-average offense was masking below-average play from their starting goalie. Felix Potvin had started the bulk of the games but his save percentage was well below league average. His backup, Bob Essenza, had been the better puck stopper to that point, but he was about to turn 36 and was in the twilight of his career. 
The two goalies split the 13 games leading up to the All-Star break, and the results weren't close. Essenza was clearly better in his seven starts than Podvin was in the other six, two of which he was pulled from. In what was becoming an annual endeavor, it was once again time for Burke to look for a goaltender. A week into February, Burke sent defenseman Adrian Acoin and a second-round draft pick to Tampa Bay in exchange for netminder Dan Kluche. Ironically, Kluche was backing up Lightning starter Kevin Weeks, who the Canucks had traded to the Islanders in order to get Podvin, the man Kluche was set to replace. Because of stature, Felix Potvin, I think, was a bigger disappointment than Kevin Weeks because Kevin Weeks was, again, very much a young prospect. Maybe he can play, maybe he can't, whereas Felix Potvin was supposed to be the sure thing, and it didn't turn out that way with him in Vancouver. So I think there was still a lot of skepticism when they made the deal for Dan Kluche. I know that internally, the organization was very happy and Brian Burke was very happy because Kluche was a guy when Burke had made the Pavel Burry trade a couple of years earlier. He was a guy that the Canucks had targeted when he was playing with the New York Rangers. And I think what they liked about Kluche is that he was a guy who was combative and fiery. And on top of that, he had a very high pedigree, was very highly regarded as a young goalie, was a high draft pick. So I think the Canucks were happy, but I think the market was a little bit skeptical because of all the goalies that they'd seen run through that turnstile in, in the crease. Kluche made his debut a week after being acquired, losing to the Capitals in overtime on Valentine's Day. Burke traded Potvin to L.A. for a third-round draft pick the very next day, officially turning the crease over to Kluche and Essenza. Kluche responded with two strong starts before a pair of weak ones. Essenza was having issues of his own, but the Canucks were outscoring their problems and Nasland was leading the way. While the goalies tried to sort themselves out, the Canucks captain was on a heater that saw him score 10 goals and rack up 18 points over a 15-game stretch. Comes up front, centers Nasland scores! Marcus Nasland! Tie game with 2.11 to go! Now that's Canucks hockey at its best! The Canucks earned points in 12 of those 15 games, and Naslin crested 40 goals and 70 points in a season for the first time in his career. A long-awaited berth in the postseason was nearly within their grasp. And that's when adversity struck. Having already picked up a pair of assists, Naslin chased down a puck in the third period of a 2-2 deadlock with the Sabres. He was hit by Buffalo Blue Liners Red Warner and Jay McKee and fell awkwardly into the end boards, breaking two bones in his right leg. Yeah, I knew right away. And, and that was tough because if we had put ourselves in that situation where we were going to the playoffs and that was tough. It was difficult to watch from the sidelines. I mean, you could hear a pin drop on our bench there when he crashed into the end boards and you just have a sick feeling in your stomach, right? Like, I mean, here's a guy who's been your captain, your kind of leader all season long, having a phenomenal year. All of a sudden, he's being stretchered off the ice. You know, pretty devastating to our team. You know, again, we were a pretty young team. Marcus was a veteran guy, and, and here is our leader. So, yeah, that was definitely a tough one to swallow, and, you know, just to get over the kind of initial shock of the seriousness of it. When your captain goes down and, and you got a guy anywhere from 75 to 100 point guys, big shoes to fill, but I still thought that we were able, or going to be able to get through that storm. I still think we had enough pieces and all that to do it. You always say, listen, you know, it's next man up. It's next man up, but BS. When you lose a guy like Marcus, it's, it, you can't replace it. Trying to clinch a playoff spot without their best player wasn't ideal, 
but the Canucks had an eight-point cushion in the standings with 10 games to go. After picking up three points in their next three games, the injury bug bit again. This time it was Castles who was lost for the season with an ankle injury. Down two-thirds of their top line, the Canucks were reeling. Mired in a six-game winless streak, Vancouver dropped from fifth in the conference to eighth. Tied in points with the Phoenix Coyotes, the Canucks entered the final two games of the season in desperate need of a victory. The good news? Both games were at home. The bad news? Both were against playoff teams. Up first, Felix Potvin and the red-hot LA Kings who'd picked up points in 13 of their past 14 games. The atmosphere was electric, but you could almost cut the tension in the air with like a knife. It was thick, man. Like, you know, we're right there. And, and, you know, we just missed out the season before. And this was the year that we're supposed to take a big step forward. And for most of the year, we had proven we could do that. Now, you know, okay, this group has to deal with some adversity and tend to get through it. A packed house at GM Place roared as Bertuzzi set up Brent Sobel for the game's opening goal just 33 seconds in. The Kings responded with a pair of goals in the second period and took a 2-1 lead through 40 minutes. The Canucks countered early in the third. Potvin out of his net, Olin right to the front of the goal! As regulation time wound to a close, the arena had become aware that Phoenix had lost in San Jose. Having earned at least a point as the game headed to overtime, all of Vancouver was suddenly aware that a goal in the extra session would catapult the Canucks into the playoffs for the first time in five years. I remember being on crutches and coming down in the locker room and being so uh, excited that one of the handles on my crutch broke. So I had that down with my broken leg and it, it did hurt and guys were laughing. But no, it, it was it was a huge relief because for the players, obviously, that, that have worked so hard, but not only that, but for the fans to give them a little bit of hope that we're back in the playoffs and, and hopefully we, we got something here that we can build upon. The celebration was one of my favorite memories of being the Canuck coach because I remember I had worked for Hockey Night Canada the years before and Scott Oak was a good friend and still is a good friend and he has a, a real affinity for Newfoundland people uh, as do I, I coached there when I came off the ice I saw him right away and he was saying I can't believe the Newf did it and that was such a great goal because uh, it is a, a good memory for everybody in that group because we finally had made the playoffs and we had to play Colorado which wasn't the <laughs> wasn't the easiest task an understatement to be sure not only did the Avalanche still have future Hall of Famers Joe Sackick Peter Forsberg and Patrick Waugh from their Stanley Cup victory in 96 but they'd acquired additional Hall of Fame talent in Ray Bork and Rob Blake for their blue line the Avs were loaded the Canucks were ailing and overmatched but they didn't go quietly into the night Vancouver played two hard road games losing each by a single goal they returned home to a raucous rink and fed off the energy of their playoff star fans. A back-and-forth affair saw the teams trade goals in all three periods before Peter Forsberg ended the game in overtime to put the Avalanche up 3-0 in the series. But for Canucks fans, that game is best remembered for a moment of recognition and appreciation. During a stoppage in play, those in attendance were directed to the big screens on the score clock. A live shot of Nasland appeared. He was standing in one of the vomitories, wearing a suit and on crutches, as the team acknowledged both his remarkable season and his current status. A standing ovation ensued, and Naslin waved to the crowd in heartfelt appreciation. I, I didn't know what to expect, but just hearing that crowd go crazy, 
I had to bite my lip not to to get too emotional. But I've had many memorable nights throughout my career and a lot of them on the ice. But that was one of the the ones that stand out for me. Oh yeah, I remember the ovation and immediately kind of wonder what's happening so you look up to the jumbotron and, and there he was kind of waving his crutch up in the air and, and the place was going berserk and as a player you have goosebumps on the bench that was neat to see you know the admiration and the appreciation that our fan base had for marcus and what they thought of him you know, not only as a player but as a person without naslin and castles the canucks were swept by the avalanche a game later colorado would go on to claim the cup for the second time in franchise history but the Canucks got an intoxicating taste of the postseason and learned a lot in the four losses. I learned that we weren't even close. I learned that we had a lot more growing to do. You always say the good teams, they learn from their mistakes, they learn from adversity and all that. And I think we learned, I remember sitting down at a year-end parties and we were like, we're not far off, but we're, we're far enough off that we got a lot more work to do the following year. They had a roster full of All-Stars, Hall of Famers. I thought that we were able to learn from that series on what it takes in order to be more consistent and be able to deal with adversity in a series. And I don't think we were able to back then. I think we we're just starting out, but I thought that series was the catapult to get us going even further in the following years. Playing against the Avs, they were the sexy team in the league. And it was, I think for our team, it was kind of them kind of seeing what they wanted to be. You know, they wanted to be viewed as I think that Avalanche team was viewed. We didn't want a team that just snuck into the playoffs. We wanted to be a team that was coming in and people were scared of. For that to happen, they'd need to evolve under the weight of greater expectations. There was once again belief that the future was bright and a blast from the past was about to become a part of it. Coming up on the next episode of Unreal West Coast Express. Obviously, going through a fairly significant injury like that, it's tough to know if you're going to come back and feel the same. I went right to him and said, Marcus, I need to talk to you. I said, listen, I want you to know that this is your team. You're the captain. I don't want to be the captain. I have no interest in it. we got to fix this right now. If we keep free-falling here, we're going to be too far out of the playoffs to get back in it. So we got to stop this free-fall right now, today. We came to the rink and, you know, they put the lineup up on the board in the morning for pregame skate. And, yeah, my name was in between those guys. And I thought, shit. I think our relationship was pretty straightforward. I was like, just play me and I will deliver. Uh, there was no doubt in my mind, Todd was the best player in the league that year. Unreal West Coast Express is a production of Toolkit Content in collaboration with GoGoat Sports. Audio production is by Andre Deacon. Writing and narration is by me, Scott Rentoul. Podcast supervision comes from Aaron Johnson. NHL game audio courtesy of the National Hockey League. Special thanks to the following NHL personnel. Hannah Riednauer, Matthew Maniker, Teresa Wiltshire, and Nick Martinez.